everyone, would you join me while I pray? Almighty God, we gather before you now to celebrate that glorious day when, through the gift of your Holy Spirit, you gave birth to the church. Grant us the excitement and joy of that first Pentecost. And let the power of that defining moment in history sink into our innermost being, helping us to be more effective witnesses to the power and truth of the gospel. Amen. Well, today is Pentecost Sunday, the birthday of the church when Jesus fulfilled his promise to send to his disciples his spirit, the helper, to give them inner power, dunamis in Greek, from which we get dynamite, for the mission he had given them to preach the gospel to the whole world. Pentecost was one of the main Jewish festivals, and it came 50 days after Passover. That's where the word pente comes from. But it was actually seven weeks after Passover, which was why Ian could refer to it last week by its other name, the Festival of Weeks. But the counting included the Sabbath of Passover itself, which began in the Jewish tradition, as all Sabbaths do, at sunset on the previous day. And so, the 50-day period ends with another Sabbath as the day of Pentecost. The Christian celebration began years later, retaining the name Pentecost, but the counting was made from the Christian Easter. Before we look in detail at our main passage from Acts, let's return by way of introduction to the time leading up to the first Easter and the Passover festival in Jerusalem, to which, seven weeks previous, Jesus had taken his disciples. Now, Passover lasted a week, and as John records in our short reading, verse 37, it was on the last and great day of that feast, the culmination of the feast, that Jesus stood up in the temple and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, teachers of the day would normally sit to teach. But here, Jesus stands and he has to shout because of all the crowds in the temple. If anyone shall be thirsting, and it's clear he's referring to folk who are thirsting spiritually, people who recognize that they have a God-shaped hole in their lives that needs filling. And the phrasing used implies that Jesus expects that there will be some, but not all. Let him come to me and drink. And the tense of that verb shows that the drinking needs to happen once only. We'll never thirst again, because it's clear from the next verse that Jesus has in mind the water of life that only he can provide as he goes on 
whoever believes in me streams in some of our uh, translations, the NIV says streams of living water will flow from within him. But literally, the one believing in me rivers, not streams, patamoi in the Greek, out of the belly of him, water of living will flow. And it's a wonderful image there and a promise that anyone coming to Jesus not only finds life in all its fullness, beautifully described as living water for themselves, but also becomes a channel through which that life can be brought to others. In verse 39, John explains that Jesus was here referring to the Holy Spirit, which all those believing in him would receive once he was glorified. So when the work of Jesus was complete, he could send the Spirit upon his followers, and that Spirit would make those living waters flow. And the tense of that verb shows that the one believing includes not only those believing him in him at the temple then, but all those down the ages, us, a timeless line of people coming to believe and out of whose obedience and faithfulness never-ending rivers of salvation would flow out to others. So with that introduction, let's move on seven weeks from that Passover to the first Pentecost, where we see in Acts 2 how those headwaters, if you like, of those rivers first began to trickle. And Luke tells us that the disciples were all together in one place. No one was missing. And I think it's reasonable to assume that there would have been an air of expectancy. Because remember, after the crucifixion, they were all terrified and in total confusion. But after the resurrection appearances, they were certain of Jesus and could uh, believe in what he said. He said he was going to send his spirit. They didn't know when it was going to come, but they were expecting it. So they were ready in a way, even though they didn't know quite how and when it would come. They were ready when the Spirit came. And verse 2 describes his arrival. <laughs> and what an arrival. Firstly, a sound like a violent wind, denoting supernatural power. And secondly, tongues as of fire, alighting upon each disciple present. And this, among other fulfillments of prophecy, is the fulfillment of John the Baptist's prophecy earlier in Luke's Gospel, Luke 3:16, when he foretells the coming of the Messiah, the thongs of whose sandals he was not worthy to untie and who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Note that there was no distinction between the disciples. All were filled with the Spirit, which is the essence of the miracle. And in verse 4, we see the evidence. They immediately began 
speaking in other languages as the Spirit directed. And the rare Greek verb used there implies that the speaking was reverent and elevated as befits their recounting the great deeds of God, which we learn they were doing from verse 11. And this speaking in various languages, hitherto unknown to the disciples, has been beautifully described by one commentator as the first full chord of that symphony of confession, testimony, prayer and praise that was soon to rise to the throne of the Redeemer from all the nations of the world. Luke explains that there were living in Jerusalem devout Jews from all over the world who were worshipping in the temple at the time and who'd been attracted by that mighty sound of the Spirit arriving in the house where the disciples had gathered. And these Jews were utterly amazed to hear the disciples whom they knew were all Galileans. They were all simple local folk speaking to them in their mother tongues. And Luke tells us where they came from, starting in the east. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, now present-day Iran. Mesopotamia, the land in between the two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates, so Iraq. Judea, Israel. Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, all in present-day Turkey. Egypt and Libya, the coast, Cyrene, where Simon was from, who carried the cross of Jesus, along with Romans, Cretans and Arabs. They were all amazed and asked themselves what it meant, literally, what wishes this to be, feeling keenly, no doubt, that they were witnessing a miracle, but not knowing yet quite what it signified. Sensibly, though, they didn't jump to any conclusion, unlike some others who, despite hearing about the great deeds of God, made light of it and mocked the disciples, saying, oh, well, they must have been drinking. Yeah, they've been drinking. At which Q. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and spoke out the same rare verb used for the disciples speaking in tongues, so with authority and dignity. And he delivers a masterly sermon. And it just goes to show what the Holy Spirit can do in the life of any believer, because remember, seven weeks previous, Peter had disowned Jesus, and after his crucifixion, he and the rest of the disciples had met in secret for fear of the authorities. Yet now, he confidently addresses a crowd of thousands. And with one stroke, verse 15, he deals with the scoffers. These men are not drunk, 
as you imagine, for it is only 9 a.m. Now, a bit of background there. Jews drank wine only when they ate meat. And they would only do that at their main meal, which was always in the evening. If you've been to Israel, it makes sense. You are not going to have, certainly you wouldn't have in, in Israel, you know, bacon and eggs, but you wouldn't even have sausage and eggs or a la Australia steak and eggs for your breakfast. You would have your main meal in the evening. So the scoffers are totally out of order. Firstly, in claiming that the disciples had already had their main meal of the day, and secondly, imagining that they had drunk too much wine with it. Indeed, the accusation of drunkenness approaches blasphemy when Peter reveals in verse 16 that what the scoffers have witnessed and mocked is actually the fulfillment of the great words of their own prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, he said. Now the last days there means the last period of world history which has already been ushered in by the first coming of Christ. I will pour out my spirit on all people. This has just happened. And the onlookers had heard for themselves the instant effect on the Galilean disciples who had spoken of the great things of God in their own languages. But there was a promise of more. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And to emphasize the fact that the gift of the Spirit is universal and available to all who receive him through faith in the risen Lord, he goes on, even on my servants, both men and women, literally my slaves, douloi in the Greek, those who have been metaphorically purchased by Christ's saving work on the cross. In other words, those of us included who come to believe in Christ in the future. I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. Now Peter continues the quote from Joel because he wants to indicate how long the spirit whom they've just seen poured out will continue his activity. Verse 19. And I will give wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke, the NIV has it. And we can assume that the blood and smoke are the result of wars and the billows of smoke um, brought to my mind anyway the, the recent pictures of Khartoum. You saw that oily smoke drifting over the city. And sadly, um, it seems that conflict in the world uh, will endure until the end. We're stuck with it. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood 
before the great and glorious day of the Lord. Sign language, if you like, there of God, proclaiming the full stop with which he will bring an end to the history of the world. The Lord's day. Joel calls it a glorious day. But of course it will also be a day of judgment and thus a bleak and fearful prospect were it not for the final verse of our reading, verse 21. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And literally, to give it um, emphasis there, the Greek translation is, it will be everyone, whoever invokes the name of the Lord, will be saved. Emphasizing again, availability to all, described by one commentator as blank spaces in precious checks signed by the Lord into which he invites anyone to write their name by faith. And whoever does will be saved. A firm promise that will not be broken. Those checks won't bounce. The mere mention of saving, of course, implies a need for it, the need to be delivered from mortal danger, from judgment, and from death, which none of us can escape, whether brought about by disease, the machinations of the wicked, war, natural death, the end of heaven and earth. Everyone needs salvation. But only the Lord has the power to rescue, to bring us to safety, and to keep us secure forever. And while, of course, he could do that without any help from us, in his providence, he has decided to involve his disciples and sent the Holy Spirit so that every follower of Christ is given a sufficient measure of heavenly power so that we may play our role in sharing the gospel eventually through a combined effort with everyone because no one is to be left out. Jesus wants all to be offered the chance to be saved and his earnest desire is that all will accept and through faith in him receive eternal life, true security indeed in the difficult times in which we find ourselves today. Amen.